Okay, um, thank you everyone so much for coming to this event. Fortunately, there were more people wanted to come than some clashes, but I'm glad that we managed to fill the room in a decent way and have some very sharp IPE minds in the audience. Um, our speaker today is Matthias Thiemann, who is an assistant professor in European public policy at Sciences Po in Paris. Um, he holds a doctorate in sociology yeah. from the University of Columbia, and he Columbia University. University. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Important difference. Um, and he researches uh, politics of expertise and financial regulation, amongst other things. Um, and has a focus on macroprudential reforms, which we will be talking about today as well. And his most recent book is called The Growth of Shadow Banking, a Comparative Institutional Analysis, which was published in 2018 by Cambridge University Press. Um, over to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Fabian, and thank you very much for coming. Um, this today is going to be a presentation of my habilitation project that I handed in yesterday at midnight. And uh, you can imagine the relief that I'm feeling that I did that. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that I want to stop this project. Instead, I have become convinced that it's going to be a book. And I'm looking forward to your comments on, in particular, Chapter 7 that I want to present to you today that is very dear to my heart and at the same time yet the most unpolished or un Unprepared work. So, as you can see, this uh, habilitation carries the audacious title Taming the Cycles of Finance? Question mark, and it inquires into ideational change after the crisis and its impact on financial regulation. And I want to be clear to you what I mean by ideational change, because that's already the crux of the matter. I do not mean simply ideas that you, I, or anybody else has. Nor do I mean ideas that are pronounced in beautiful policy discourses like um, the financial system might be cyclical or we need macroprudential regulation. Instead, I mean ideas undergirded by policy devices and robust economic research and econometric research. So only that, and this is going to be already the crux of the argument today, for me will be able to bring about change. Speeches alone don't. We need econometric and economic work. And so I'm developing this theme in this, what is to become a book, hopefully, about uh, the topic of financial regulation after the financial crisis, and in particular, macroprudential regulation. And um, it's interesting to notice the, what, what one could call the early literature on, on the regulation after the crisis. Why is it interesting? On the one hand, you have this, okay, already telling title, Status Quo Crisis by Helena, who singles out macroprudential regulation as maybe the only real change that might have come about. And then notice that still to him it's really not much at all. And um, why I say it's interesting to notice this work is, is there is a tension, and I think it's a tension that we have all experienced ourselves as academics, is we want to write about the things of the day. We're tempted to write about the financial crisis and so on. And then, when you read these books, while you are, you are, you can, on the one hand, observe very sharp and smart minds making statements and at the same time hedging their bets. 
So, for example, the lineup will say this is a status quo crisis, and at the same time, it will take usually it takes a decade or more for these things to play out. So there is this tension, right? And so, but when I looked at this literature, when I started this project about six years ago, there was a, there was an, a, a book chapter by Daniel Müller on the resilience of neoliberalism that I found very that guided my thinking, where he said, well, one reason why little to nothing has changed in terms of financial regulation is that there was simply no economic idea set around that could challenge neoliberal views in finance. And in contrast to Baker, there's a kind of statement that can be read in contrast to Baker that I'll get to in a second. I think he was right about that in 2012. And what I try to convince you of today is that today there is an economic idea set that can challenge neoliberal views. And I'll argue that the people that have developed it are applied economists in central banks. And so, um, how many of you know what macroprudential regulation is? Kind of. So should I expand a bit? Okay. So macroprudential regulation really is this thing uh, that, that says, uh, Baker has described it as, as a reintroduction of Keynesian thinking. It just says, macroprudential regulation is not enough. So microprudential regulation for the crisis said a simple thing. If every sim single bank is safe, the financial system is safe. Right? That's the idea of microprudential regulation. Macroprudential regulation says, no, we have to look at the financial system as a whole. And we have to understand macro trends, which can endanger the system. Okay? And so this, uh, this crucial idea here is that the financial system might operate in financial cycles of booms and busts, and that's the task of the regulator to take preventive action, you may have heard this before, to take away the punch bowl before the party gets going. Maybe you heard this before, it's a saying from the 1950s in the US, when most of this was actually enacted through monetary policy. But uh, um, now, for me, uh, what is interesting to me is, so some speak of macroprudential regulation as a mere rhetorical device an act of symbolic politics by the G20 in 2009, uh, where basically politics answers the call for action by identifying something that seems to be like already something like an idea set, namely macroprudential regulation, that can be presented to the larger public as this is the answer to the crisis. This is what we'll do. And I think uh, Lombardi and Moschella make a fair point about it, and the way that I usually visualize it is. The G20 and the central bankers get into a room. The G20 hands over the task to enact macroprudential regulation, and the G20 leaves the room. So the politicians hand over a task and leave the room. Job done. We did it. We handed it over to the technocrats, and the technocrats then were tasked with implementing. And so uh, some people, like Underhill, wrote a nice article, but again, already rather early about the power of finance in the process of adverse ideation and selection. There is some truth to it, but I think um, I don't like this approach because immediately after the crisis, at least the direct power of finance was not that strong. And Baker, on the other hand, and I'm sure you've heard of his work, he speaks of an ideational paradigm shift, a gestalt flip of the thinking about financial regulation, which however still lacks the policy tools and, think, uh, and settings. So what he does, and uh, in my work, this was for me the starting point of this entire 
habilitation that I wrote, he says basically very important thinkers in these regulatory circles at the BIS and some economists at the, in academia uh, push for this idea of macroprudential regulation and manage to convince uh, the regulators that this is how you should see the world and that's how it should get enacted. Now, my first interview basically already clarified to me that this account hugely overestimates the epistemic authority of the BIS. So when I spoke to a former vice president of the Bundesbank, he said these people, well yes, we read their work, but we wouldn't really take them seriously. They don't even have models. When you read their work, you realize that this is a very narrative kind of account of the economy. There are no models, there's little to nothing in terms of econometrics and so on. And, uh, and, and I think what is most important here is that it's really, this is a two-flat understanding of agation and change. It's as if you can just change your mind, then you just need to imagine it. Okay? As if, um, and I need to find a uh, translation in English, Pablo Neruda once spoke about the difficulties of the plane. I don't know if this is exactly the translation in English. So, so as if this could, would just be negligible. It's just, once you decide on the course of action, you sail your course, okay? And I don't think that's actually what happens because it really underestimates the requirements of regulatory science. Which is this process in which regulators or economists in central banks engage with economists in academia to establish objectified knowledge. Objectified, objective knowledge, basically, that can be used in regulation. So, today in an era of evidence-based policy, you cannot just come up with some idea. Instead, you need to provide evidence for it. Okay? And basically, the argument, okay, and so what I'm going to argue is that we need to pay attention to academic economists and economists in the wild. The term that Carnot frames in uh, 1998, where he refers to economists in bureaucratic setting that seek to develop economic models and policy devices to justify and guide policy intervention. Okay? And... Yeah. That's so far so clear? Okay, good. But, and the important part, as I said already earlier, is that macroprudential thinking really stood at the margin of the academic and economic mainstream in the 2000s. It was largely non-formalized, non-model work, and it stood, and that's very important, in sharp contradiction to the efficient market hypothesis and simple value at risk So basically it was almost orthogonal to the orthodoxy before the crisis. Okay? And so in order to change the course of regulation, uh, you needed then to develop these themes much more thoroughly. So in other words, the difference is between the difference between Baker's early view on this and mine can be summarized in an interview quote in which the lady from the Bundesbank told me, well, you know, politics really got ahead of us. And so suddenly we were there trying to test these models and trying to understand what it all means, and we were playing catch up with politics. Okay? So instead of seeing this as a gestalt flip, what I think actually really happened is that politics wants to signal to the public we're doing something hands over an envelope on which is written macroprudential regulation which has, which has some vague ideas to the technocrats and says, you, you do it, you guys do it. 
and that's it. And I think what we actually need to do then is to focus on the materialization of ideas. And so rather than having an agency-based constructivist approach, agent-based constructivist approach, I want to refine this and I want to focus on the production of new policy devices that allow regulators to see, know, and regulate these systemic risks. Because I'm, I'm arguing that it's these things that bring about the change. Only when you have that will you see change. Of course, and it's important, this is a necessary condition, not a sufficient condition for change, right? And we can get to that in the discussion. But without that, you will have no change. And so this requires to operationalize this approach. And what basically needs to be done is that you have to identify, measure, and regulate sources of systemic risk in an appropriate manner. Which means you need to identify the right metrics to generate the databases and to find the proper trigger points for regulatory action. And so my argument is basically in 2009, they don't know any of that, really. They have some vague ideas what they should be looking for, but nothing in terms of the, uh, uh, really robust economics. And so just to give you an example, when I did an interview with an IMF economist, he polemically called this Mickey Mouse economics. Okay? And so what we're observing here is the process of transforming Mickey Mouse economics into a robust framework, and this effort really centers around this idea. So this is what I'm investigating. This is a presentation of the financial cycle in, um, in the US. And the argument is that the financial system operates in these boom-bust cycles from 1984 onwards that is different from the business cycle and that as a regulator you can actually identify. And so the idea is this is very practical knowledge, or supposed to be practical knowledge, right? Actionable knowledge. The idea is when I see this going up, when I see the boom, I can intervene. I can do something as a regulator to seek to mitigate the cycle and make the system safe. Right? And this work, which is from 2012, was already kind of developed in 2009, 2010 in the service of the BIS. And this is what gets implemented in, as a vague notion in the counter-cyclical capital buffer. Now, one more time, and a small uh, bowing to the people in the room, and I think which is, which is uh, actually uh, needed and appropriate. So I'm drawing on the analytical framework provided by constructivist institutionalists, and so on, because they help us to think about the form in which statements are made, and also they provide us these four mechanisms, which I think are very helpful uh, for my work, which says basically, when you're an applied economist and you want to change course, you need to reconcile these ideas with the existing thinking. You need to corroborate these ideas. That is, you need to find evidence and data that helps you doing it. And you need to operationalize the ideas. And so the thing that I, and I think all of this is correct, the only thing where I think I would like to add is that the notion of interpretive fil frames and cognitive filters or models it remains rather underdefined. Um, so there are these intersubjectively shared frames of meaning, uh, but what underlies them and where do they come from? And basically, the one step that I want to go further than that is to argue when we focus on the creation of policy devices and the processes of regulatory science that underlie them, what actually basically comes into view 
is the creative agency of these economists. So if you read Ben's work, what you come away with is this idea that these IMF economists they are very practical, they are very smart, they read the literature, and then they apply and use these ideas that they're out there. What I'm going to argue is these economists make these ideas. They are not adopters, or they are creators. And we have to acknowledge their creative side and basically, uh, um, um, this is the first attempt to capture this, okay? When you are an applied economist, you're driven by empirics, you're driven by your boss telling you that you have to come up with something, but you develop policy devices and you advance the economic discourse at the same time. And the way, and so these people here for me, so basically rather than Borio, that you will have heard a lot about here with Baker's work, for me these people like Stim Klassen, at the, uh, at the IMF, then Tobias Adrian, who was at the Fed and who's now at the IMF, or Yun Song Shin, who's now the PIS economist. These are the real creators of these policy devices. These are the crucial people. And the argument, theoretical argument that I want to make is about, and here I draw on the sociology of economics, that there is a dialectical unity of economics that is really, really interesting that we can unearth and study here for this case. And the argument here I take, the first argument I take from Langley, and it's very smart. Langley, at the beginning of his book, he says, well, the crisis was an absolute disaster for economics as a science. Absolute disaster. But it was actually a very good showing for economics as the bureaucratic craft of administrating the economy, of making the economy amenable to state intervention. Okay? So he develops this theme of economics is actually two things at the same time. This bureaucratic craft of administering the economy, and on the other hand, this scientific thinking about it. Okay? And what I want to argue today is that these applied economists, they are the agents of this dialectical unity of economics, where we, which we can arguably trace back centuries. I mean, if you read Foucault's work, Foucault argues that it's demands imposed upon economists by the political, by politics. Again, for example, the French state says, we want to organize something. And then economists have to come up with a system of organizing it, of uh, intervening in the economy. And at the same time, this shapes both the administrative craft and the economic scientific discourse. Okay? okay. I hope I haven't lost you by now. I wanted to bring in a hero, hero of mine who's a former student of this department, so I thought that I'm going to talk shortly about Ben Brown's work on the tra trajectories of governability paradigms. Of course, I could have also chosen uh, Wittmeyer's book, <laughs> but it's pretty much the same thing. This idea is basically, and, uh, and Ben will also cite this, this quote by Schumpeter, everything starts with a vision of the economy, right? And so my argument is that Borio has this vision of financial markets, but you really need to formalize and operationalize this vision. You need to see for ways to measure it, estimate and predict it. And the role of econometricians is crucial. Tinbergen is crucial for Keynesianism. Maybe Tinbergen is more important for Keynesianism than Keynes. And so if you just want to have a look at the gargantuan task that these economists were facing, the efficient market hypothesis is very well uh, established by 2008, but the macroprudential vision of finance is cyclical and all its requirements is basically just at its beginning. 
And so what I'm doing is I'm tracing the development of this vision and its implementation of the last 15 years. And the way that I do it, and then I get to my case, promised, sorry, 350 pages, I'm uh, working on letting go, but, um, <laughs> and, but look, I look at the evolution of macroprudential frameworks in the US, UK, and the Eurozone, and I do a document analysis to trace this coordinated discourse among central bankers. I attended many of the conferences of these applied economists, which was really an interesting time because you can observe how they interact with the economists. And I did 50 interviews with academic and central bank I.O. economists working on these issues. And lastly, topic modeling and statistical analysis, but I'll spare you that part um, for today. But I, I have them, these slides in, in, all the way at the end if you want, if you want to know more about it. Now, what I want to talk today about is this chapter 7 of my habitation. And it's actually the work of setting and calibrating the countercyclical capital buffer, which is this crucial anticyclical element of Basel III regulation. And that says, well, dear regulator, when you observe that the cycle goes up, when it gets into the boom phase, you have to do something about it. Raise the capital. And when you see that you're entering the bus, lower the capital. Right? And so, uh, what I'm looking at is the process over the last 10 years when they implemented. And uh, what I find is this transformation of the, what this guy called Mickey Mouse economics into a robust and tested frameworks of early warning systems. And not only that, because that's just the craft of administrative craft, right? Just detecting problems. But I also find how this discourse, this work, leads to the inclusion of this kind of thinking in the most prominent academic journals that there are. So basically, into the American Economic Review. Okay? And this is the argument that only because these guys, but they work, they work, their work is so robust and rigorous that they get even the approval of academic economics. And providing this robustness, I would argue, allows for a more aggressive macroprudential stance, something that was not possible in 2009, or 2013, or 2016. So basically the argument is, uh, dear academic friends, uh, you're just too early. And of course, very good criticism of my work can be, and you too, Matthias. But that's the, that's the business of writing something at some point in time, right? So um, what, what we will see is, the first thing is that they have expanded the database such that they can actually today test their frameworks and they can look at different variables to find the best specification. And uh, so basically we're moving from 10 country databases over 20 years to 28 countries in 40 years. And if you know a little bit about econometrics, that just completely transforms the capacity of you making real predictions and tests. And what I find even more interesting is we observe a shift from seeking to predict crisis to an approach that actually is more continuous and says, well, what's the probability of a crisis? And if a crisis comes, how strong is it going to be? How strong is it going to affect the economy? And combining these two with this advancement allows, in a sense, to uh, present to the regulator a strong argument that says, our models say in three years' time the probability of a crisis is X percent, and if the crisis hits, it's going to be Y. And for me, what was really interesting, I'm a bit puzzled by this, I do this interview in 2015 with this IMF economist, and he says, well, that's exactly what you want to have. 
You want to have this one number. You want to have one number, when you are in the regulator, you have five minutes, you want to say, boom, we need to do action. Okay. And for me, what is so weird is that coming back to it five years later, such a framework has been developed. Exactly such a framework that does exactly that. You know? And for me, it's, it's also Ben puts it, when you're a change agent, you put your thinking in a way that can affect action in your institutional setting. And that's exactly what they've done. They've developed a framework that tries to say, you need to act today, or in three years' time, we're going to have a horrible crisis. Okay? And so, what I'm doing then is I'm tracing it, what happened, and in the US, it's very interesting because in the US, basically they initially completely reject the idea of the cycle. And any, any uh, framework that should do that. On the other hand, they are uh, uh, the first ones who really install and organize the stress test that is the first kind of macroprudential uh, exercise uh, in the Western world, honest to add. And uh, it's important to say that Bernanke, uh, who's also a Princeton professor, dislikes the idea of the cycle. He says basically nobody can predict the cycle, or in very neoliberal terms, you cannot know better than the market. Nobody can know better than the market, right? And so, but at the same time, he encourages the development of a financial vulnerabilities framework because, uh, as you probably know, the Dodd-Frank Act changes the Federal Reserve Act uh, 13, right, uh, 3, uh, which is the, provi the provision of liquidity in times of crisis. And basically, the U.S., the Fed, after the Dodd-Frank Act, has a hard time, or will have a hard time in the next crisis, to provide liquidity. And so he says, well, if my old framework of mopping up the mess afterwards doesn't work anymore because I can't mop up, well, maybe I need to seek to, okay? And so what we have is, in 2013, these guys, Adrian Kovitz and Lang, or you heard about Adrian, they come up with a financial vulnerabilities framework, and when you read it, what is absolutely fascinating is they cite Borio once. Basically, cycle, Borium. The rest of it is all the emerging literature in what could be called the academic mainstream to construct their framework. And it makes complete sense because the, you know, uh, my interviews tell me, you know, they're very model-based, they're very mainstreamy, and, and they want, uh, they don't accept the cycle as, as, a, as, as just as a concept. You know, they challenge the concept. And then what happens, and here I'm really lucky because I interviewed the guy at the Bank of England, who actually was seconded to the Fed. And he came there in 2013. He tells me, I was very surprised. They actually thought much more positive about this than I thought from outside. And so he goes there and they backtest the argument. Because basically, Fed Governor Stein, who's a Harvard professor in economics, says, all fine and well, you have this framework. Why should I believe it? Backtest it. Otherwise, I will not believe it. Good, like, you know, like good economist. And so what happens? They do build up their database for the past 50 years. They show a good predictive capacity in pseudo real time, kind of important. You, you, you run these like in pseudo real time, so you, you only feed in the data as it comes out, right? And so they develop a heat map, which still today feeds into the FOMC decision making, and they suggest a specification that says the counter cyclical capital buffer should be on, so activated one third of the time, and 15% of the time in the historical data. It should be at the maximum. So basically, the Fed economists, they embrace this idea. After six years, not immediately. They need the time to back this. But what happens is, 
when they install the CCYB, basically, you can read in the speeches, it's supposed to be at zero pretty much all of the time. Okay? So it shows you, of course, as an applied economist, you can't change the world all on your own. Right? So the, the, Fed opposes, the Fed at the top opposes this idea. They go and step for resilience, and I can explain it well. The reason for it is they can be easily challenged. The Fed can't really do discretionary policy. But, and this is, gonna, this is here where the problem starts for me in terms of narrating this. In 2018, 2019, they will start thinking about uh, implementing the CCYB based on the most advanced method as it was developed in the UK. And I'll get to that. Because what happens is, and here's what I find fascinating, or what I still struggling with this, is, so the situation is blocked. You can't get counter-cyclical action, so what do the Fed researchers do? They don't just stop working. Instead, they try to develop a framework that can influence monetary policy directly. And what they develop is the growth at risk framework, which is an early warning system based on quantum regression. And they put basically the financial vulnerabilities on the left-hand side and growth in the future on the other way around. So you, you want to predict growth in the future and you put these financial vulnerabilities on the right hand side. And what they show is as financial vulnerabilities build up, they can predict the, prob the, 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 the probability of a crisis goes up, but the probability of positive change doesn't. See what I mean? So loser financial conditions are a good predictor of financial crisis, but they don't mean anything positive. Again? And that's a clear sign for action, right? Because you don't gain anything, but you tend to lose a lot. And this finding, actually, is, I think, the reason why it was published in the American Economic Review. Okay, this is basically the establishment of a stylized fact. This, I argue, is the translation of the idea of the financial cycle into the language of modern econometrics. With all its difficulties, with all its difficulties, why difficulties? There is no causality in this model. It's just a stylized fact, right? And usually economists love causality. That's all their game, identification. But this establishes a stylized fact. Loose financial conditions impact the negative downside risk to growth, but not the positive. So what happens then, basically, and I call this in my meditation, when an idea goes on a trip, this, trip, this idea cannot be implemented in the US. But other researchers in the UK and in Europe, they start drawing on it, and they start implementing it in their work, which in the end will, in a ricocheting effect, possibly impact the Fed itself. So this is just the, 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 future, the future as presented in this model. And this is the left-hand tail, this is the right-hand tail. And basically what you do is you look at, oh, the left-hand tail goes up, probability of a crisis goes up. But, uh, yeah. Okay, so what happens in the EU and the Eurozone is you basically, these guys all get together in 2010, uh, 2012, sorry, and they start to discuss, well, what should we do? And so they publish in 2014, the European Systemic Risk Board publishes this paper and says, well, for now, we're going to go with the Mickey Mouse economics. And please apologize. We're going to do Bayesian Revisited. It's very simple. It's easy. It's rather ad hoc, so that's not really great. But it's the least costly, and it's what we can agree on right now, right? But they say, well, in the future, we probably want to go here. We want to go 
to, for example, stress tests, which allows us to be forward-looking and say, hey, it seems as if there are stress, uh, like financial vulnerability, the system gets more vulnerable, stress tests indicate there will be problems, so we will do something, right? And so then what happens in the Eurozone, which is really interesting for me as a sociologist slash political economist, is in the Eurozone there is this negotiation between national competent authorities and the ECB. And basically um, the ECB gets these top-up powers, which is a very delicate topic because the ECB can in theory say, you're wrong, there are cyclical systemic risks building up in Germany, we will have counter-cyclical capital. But at the same time, everybody tells me, well, we won't never do that. We'll never do that because, you know, I mean, it's also a bit absurd. The Bundesbank is part of the European system of central banks. The Bundesbank sits on the board of the ECB. So there is, there is a little tension here. What happens is basically that they negotiate. They negotiate, and this is really regulatory science at its best, is the ECB of the European Systemic Risk Group they, or they invest in measuring the financial cycle to gain this epistemic authority. <coughs> capacity to say, hey, your cycle swings up or you should, you should, you should uh, do something. And with the national competent authorities, they develop a whole branch of early warning systems to discuss with them whether they should do something. Importantly, this approach is really just probability-based, so they're really a bit primitive. But in a sense, what you can see here is a refined version of the graph that I showed you at the beginning. And why is it refined? And I get a bit technical here, but basically a 30-year-old researcher finds that the HP filter that they're using to filter the data, the Borio, is creating artificial cycles. It's creating cycles not because they're there, but it's creating cycles because of the way the filter is specified. So he shows that instead, if you specify the filter more appropriately, you get these kind of uh, cycles. And why that matters is actually because he can show that the way the financial cycle is measured in Borio, it implies that for the next 10 years, there will be no financial cycle. No upswing, sorry. There will be no upswing. Simply because of the filter. The way that the filter is set, there will be no upswing. Well, that's great for all national competent authorities that don't want to act because they fear the political economy of intervening in, in, in credit, okay? And it's horrible for the ECB that sees these cyclical risks building up and, and saying, you need to do something, you need to do something. And, and, and the National Competent Authority always says, no, no, we're using the Basel method and there's no risk. So this is the kind of struggle that's going on here, okay? And the way that this kind of struggle plays out is the ECB <coughs> sets these red lights. You can't see much. What it does is basically says, our model one says you have a problem. Or our model two says you have a problem, model three says you have a problem, model four says you have a problem. And so, you know, it's trying to convey the message and then discussing with them. Basically saying, hey, we agreed on this model. The model shows a red light, you should do something. Why do you think that you should not do something? You know what I mean? This, they're trying to structure the discussion, but they're not really very successful. And I discussed this with the case of Germany, but I'll skip this. Just to get to the UK, because... So the UK, as you may know, is the most advanced in macroprudential radiation. At least, important interview material, they are best at presenting themselves as the most advanced. So they're very, 
the very, uh, well, look, here's the cutting edge stuff that we're doing. What I find initially, it's very judgment-based. So they do financial cycle. They're not like the Americans. They do accept that language, but they do judgment. They just say, look, 10 reasonable men come in a room and we're going to discuss this out until we have an uh, opinion on what we should do. And the models really, they're just there to give some input. Okay? And then what happens is in 2014, they start include the stress test. And for me, the most fascinating shift comes in 2015, 2016, when they start to do anti-cyclical stress tests. So they basically put their understanding of where the financial cycle is in the stress test, and they say, what's going to happen if a crisis comes now? Okay? And what happens is basically they get ever better at getting more econometric results, more different variables are found to be important, and they're basically at this stage. Right? And the problem is, how do you convey this to a policymaker? Well, some, some models say red, some say yellow, some say green, we don't really know. You can't work with that with a policymaker, right? The policymaker wants to know what should I do. He doesn't want to know what's the latest economic model, right? And so what happens is that they look, start looking for alternatives and they encounter the growth at risk framework in an IMF BOE workshop in 2017, where Adrian himself, and here we get to positioning and so on, he become, he's the director of capital market divisions, and he starts this advertisement tour for the growth at risk framework. This is what you should do. And so they, they, they meet it, they, and then they, they become completely enthusiastic about it. It's the summary statistic of the ultimate objective of macroprudential policy. It's the holy grail. Here we are. And what they then do in the next two years is they basically use this fantastic database that has been created by the Europeans that includes 28 countries and 50 years, and they test it. And they find, yes, it's reliable, yes, it's robust, and yes, it does good, good early warning for three to five years ahead. And they even dare to produce a post-factum cost-benefit analysis. So what they do is they say, okay, guys, Let's take our growth at risk framework and let's act in pseudo real time and simulate where the CCYB would have been before the crisis. And then let's look how that would have affected the crisis. You see, we're in a lot of ifs and ifs and ifs and ifs. But is this what, uh, what Benjamin Brown nicely calls, or Morgan calls, these model worlds? Economists create these model worlds in which they can create plausible scenarios of the future, right? And so what they find is their framework would have reduced the impact of the crisis by 20 to 40%. Now that's a very nice statement. But if you push them on it, in the interview they're like, we're not really going to like go all out on it, like we're not 100% convinced. But this is the kind of statement that you want to make to a policymaker, right? We can, okay. Do they believe that you can absolutely accurately predict the tail risk in the future? No. They, they told me. And th but then the guy said, but are we that good at predicting inflation? No. Do we abandon the inflation forecasting framework because we fail forecasting inflation? No. Why not? Because it's about communication and it's about focusing policymakers' mindsets. It's about telling them what they should do. And just as an illustration, this is how they illustrate it. It's not that important, and I've done it a little over time, but it would allow you to discuss with the policymaker, oh, look, here's where we are. This is what's going to happen if we go there. How risk tolerant are you? 
how much risk do you want to take, right? And based on that, we can then decide. And, and the consequences of that is that, and yes, this is very recent, but so in, 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 in January 2019, they installed the growth at risk framework into the CCYB, and by 2019, they decide to set the CCYB permanently at 2%. And the idea is, that's a very interesting idea, is, okay, if you want to make the system resilient, one option is you just jack up capital requirements at 25 to 30%. Probably heard about the health check, right? Now they say that will probably imply some losses. But if you're good at predicting the cycle, what you can do is, you can be at that optimal point before the crisis, but you don't need to be there all of the time. So in this way, you know, cost-benefit, ta-da-da, you can be, you can have the maximum capital that you need right before the crisis, which of course is quite a courageous statement that could get, could get it very, very wrong. But what I really like about, I mean, and here we get also to the discourse again, so I'm not need, uh, rejecting discursive institutionalism, I'm just saying they, they miss one element, okay? When we look at what, what Brazier says, Brazier is the financial stability spokesperson, if you want, he uses the language of the earthquake. And this is, for me, it's brilliant to switch from the cycle to the earthquake. Why? Because the cycle has this idea of the ever-repeating history and we can predict exactly when we should intervene, right? So it's kind of like, if we just knew. Now this is very different. It says, well, we all agree there are earthquakes, right? And we all agree that we can measure the tension that builds up under the ground. But nobody expects an earthquake scientist to predict when the earthquake comes. What you do expect an earthquake scientist to do is to say, I think you should build that house a little bit more resilient. Because there are tensions building. And that's the image that he's using. He says, we're going to push in, build in resilience, when that resilience, we can consistently build resilience into the financial system well ahead of when that resilience is needed. And what I find, what is the point for me at this point is that he then cites Crockett. This famous speech by the 2000 Crockett British guy who put macroprudential policy on the agenda. And it's, it's, it's I'm not going to read it all to you, but it's amazing that rhetorically it really works. So here is Brazil that can basically put him there in 2019 and say, Today, we are finally implementing what Crockett had in mind in 2000. But it's not the language of the cycle. It's not Boreal. It's not the BIS. It's the work of the Fed economists that are following the academic mainstream but get their results published and get their results published in the AER that pushes this. Okay? And so I end the chapter with this com comparison. And then basically, um, To come to the conclusion, and I've spoken for long enough, I guess, is um, I think we need to move away from policy paradigm shift thinking, and I think we are well on our way. It's not, not the one that invents this tool. But I, I hope that I can contribute. So where they only see incremental change, I think when we follow a multi-field analysis, we can actually see massive changes in economics. In economics and in policy devices. So in, in both of them. If you remember the dialectical unity, both of them have moved. 
And stress tests start to become the model words in which economists, where they rely enough trust these models to uh, um, use them to predict consequences of their action. And <coughs> even we find more advanced cost-benefit analysis even there. They're not, like, you know, it's just kind of like putting your foot in the water but not being sure that you can swim. So of course, political economy remains an issue. What I find interesting is that research indicates, by disguise indicates, that building up capital in good times is not that costly. So the, what I'm saying is, yes, political economy matters, but it's the kind of political economy of a Donald Trump that, or a captured politician. So a captured politician will not raise capital because the bank's term is not good. But it's not because he's aware of a financialized political economy that he will not raise it. You see what I mean? The difference? Like, it is, I, I use the Peter Wolf concept from 1989, the viability concept. It is viable to do this without destroying the growth one. That's the argument. So you can do this and still have a financialized economy. You just need to capture the good times, because if you force banks to build up the capital in good times, all that changes is just they can't distribute dividends. Yeah? But you're not impacting credit provision. So your, your financialized economy can go on being financialized. Yeah? Just make sure that the banks have the money in the moment of crisis. And so, um, yeah. I have one last slide on uh, <coughs> the untenable status of central, uh, independent status of central banks, status of independent central banks, um, where I just point out, and this, that's how I end the habilitation, is of course financial stability and anti-cyclical interventions, they require this collaboration between politicians and central banks. And that is very much what we had. I mean, it's, 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 it's an active inter like, channel of communication and exchange that was there before independence. Okay? And either, either they are building this, or they are putting themselves in an untenable situation. Because their research, their science says there is risk. So if your research and your science says there is risk, and you don't act, and the crisis unfolds, then, then what's going to happen? You can't, in a sense, you can't play anymore you can't play anymore the blame avoidance game that they played last crisis. You can't say nobody saw this coming. Because these models, well, if, <coughs> if they're any good, they will see this coming. Of course, it's a big if. I but, okay. Uh, this is it. Thank you very much.
19 uncertainties a thing and it's out there and it shapes financial bubbles and crises and, and cycles. Therefore, modeling is, is only going to give you so much of a grasp of that reality. So I wonder whether you think the kind of the robustness of models is going to how does that relate to the kind of robustness of the policy regime in the real world? Mm. Yeah, it's it's something that I uh, I'm I'm working out. It's, a, it's an important question. So what I notice, what I find fascinating, and there is this book, The Taming of Chance by Hacking. There is of course an allusion to that book. It's that what happens is they are following exactly the academic mainstream path of dealing with um, uncertainty. What do they do? Is basically they transform it in multiple distributions over time that then can be modeled and approximated in their econometric framework. Uh, this is the growth at risk framework that I'm talking about. Now, um, in a sense, One thing that I can say for certain is that as these results of these models get communicated, so I'm going to take a step back. I'm not going to comment on the ontological quality of these models. Instead, what I'm going to say is I'm going to speak about the, the political effects of their existence. These results are easily producible. So easy that the IMF today has an Excel sheet where, where you can just plug in the numbers and you get a growth at risk framework forecast. And that means that if a crisis occurs based on the loosening of financial vulnerabilities and nothing has been done about it, blame will be attributed. And there is there's this weird moment in me that because by initial training, or by some of my initial training, I'm a Minskill. I think what we're observing here is the reformulation of Minskian insights in the new modern mainstream academic language. How does that play out? Does it take away these uncertainties and these uh, uh, uncalculable risks that you're talking about? Can you take them into account? No. People that are in the practice, they will tell you, but that's what we have expert judgment for. But, um, I'm very happy that we're recording this, and I'm going <laughs> to keep on thinking about this question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one question I've been perhaps related is, how important are actually, actually the fact that everything is a model in terms of the policy devices? Because I, mean, I totally buy your point because I'm also seeing that the ideas matter only when they're integrated into something more tangible rather than an idea that convinces somebody. But I would wonder if uh, not, you know, like having a data set, having a typology, having definitions of variables, if those more like lower uh, aggregation policy uh, kind of socio-technical instruments do not also matter and that you have kind of the uh, the tendency to ascribe too much agency and too much importance to the models because they stipulate the relationship and they're kind of well published by yeah. other processes. Well, I agree with that and I want to, that's very important, but there, there are two steps in my argument here. 
and, and uh, so the first step is to say what we observed in the time from 2012 to 2017 is actually a multiplication of variables and of indicators and there is ever more complex but ever more tentative findings. There are first findings of causation. Oh, it seems as if real estate prices do predict prices. Kind of pretty accepted by now. But they're still formulating it in the, in the tentative. And then what happens is, basically, these multiple variables, multiple models, multiple truths uh, become so unwieldy for the policy process and that's why growth is so attractive. And yes, I mean, if you, there, there are, uh, and let's get into this. So, one, there are many things that are questionable about the growth and risk framework. The first one for a good economist is there is no causality. It just says when I plug in financial vulnerability in the beta and I plug in growth in the Y. I get a relationship on the probability distributions for the left-hand tail. But if you talk with an economist, you can say, well, you can also do this the other way around, in theory. And you could say, oh, financial vulnerabilities are impacted by growth. So which way does the causality go? And this is interesting because, it's an interesting question because when one comes to ask oneself, how do they survive the peer review process and so on? What I, what, what I think what happens is, even economics as an academic science is aware of the need that to maintain legitimacy they need to answer the questions of our times at least to some degree. And these guys do establish what could be called stylized fact. You know, I mean, that's, that's how I read it. And this is also the second shortcoming. There is no theory. There is yet no theory in the academic mainstream. And I sent an email asking, why do you not use Minsky? I never got an answer. <laughs> that question was like, okay, uh, you know. But they, they still have no causal, they do, well, it's actually interesting, it's kind of like, because Adrian and so on, they have these puzzle pieces. They would tell you, well, we know that broker dealers, they overextend their balance sheets in good times, and then when the crisis comes, they go all, all down. But they don't have a full model yet. They have these, like, you know, bits and pieces, but they have no full causal account. And so for the moment, the, the growth at risk framework, the stylist fact, that's all they have. But it stands in an interesting relationship with these variables, with these data sets, because what growth at risk does is, is actually it uses these 28 variables, it compartmentalizes them into three different groups, and then puts it all together in one number. You see what I mean? Yeah. But it, they, what it does is it's an instrument for decomplexifying complexity. So, but there is no causal, I mean, you know, so there is a very weird moment here in economics right now where, where something exists in economic discourse that in and of itself does not live up to the epistemological standards of economics, which is identification and causality. There is no causality. But then if you ask, you know, so, but, but this is this tension, that's what I mean with dialectical unity, is this, it's a tension that they have to live with, because economics needs to answer the questions of the day, in a sense. Because otherwise, at some point, somebody might ask, well, why do we have you? Right? In a sense. I mean, we can debate this, conditions of this, but I think it's still, it's still an important point. Okay. 
Um, okay, great, thank you. Um, so I got three points. Hosting devices drive parallel, what, drive what we later describe as parallel chips. Yeah. Policy devices are engineered by policy insiders, who then have a dialectical relationship with academic economy. And then right at the end, you said there's the growth model that ultimately is the limit on whether these things get adopted in the economy. So if this thing's been screwed yeah. out, actually, growth yeah. model then it's not adopted. So I just wondered what the tension is then between placing the importance in policy devices, while on the other hand, having the final backstop being the growth model. And which of those two things is the ultimate? Um, so, yeah, so, so here's the interesting, that's the, the, that's the one thing that struck me in this research, actually, is that what you just repeated is essentially, and it's good that it came across, is Peter Hall's framework of viabilities of 1989. And what struck me is that it almost seems as if his 1992 and 1993 contributions were so overpowering that they wiped out this viability framework. It's the first point. So for me, it's like almost like a path that was a little bit abandoned for a different path, which is the paradigm shift path that only looks at inside the state apparatus, whereas the before, okay. But Hall is not clear on it. First answer, Hall is not clear on it. And it's a pity that work has not continued on this, so that we're still at 1989, in a sense, from my perspective. If I misread the literature, I apologize, but from a, we're still there. But then, also note what I said, is Macro pool, the resilient version of it, that builds up capital in good times, is not in contradiction with the growth model. And so, um, it is viable. And all Hall says, that at his, when he does this, it's a very nice book uh, when they analyze the rise of Keynesianism, Scotch Pole and Weir and all that. And he says there is not one factor that can account for everything, but it needs to be viable in at least three of these four dimensions. So bureaucrats need to think it's reasonable to do this. Uh, economists need to think it's kind of reasonable to do this. The growth model needs to say it's kind of okay to do this. And then politicians need to be willing to bet their career on that. I just, I, I wonder if you, because the, the, in the way that you're presenting it, policy device is such a thing of generative importance. I wonder if the radical conclusion from that is that the device is generative of the growth model, um, rather than the growth model being the, so like in, if we, if we see, if we trace policy generation, that being the thing that ultimately will then shift what is, Considered to be the, the bottom line. So, so this, 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 this is. I really hope this records <laughs> because if it doesn't, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's not for me. It's for me. what he just. Not for me. I, I have myself in my room all the time. Uh, it's it's uh, because it's about the way that the state relates to finance and that what actually happened, and there's this very good work by Honoros Goethe about this, but what happened is that um, the nominalists that don't think about the risks of credit and so on, they just see credit as a way to increase growth, they don't have the policy devices to, to see... They, they don't have the policy devices to see the risks that are building up. So for me, it's almost what I'm doing is a little bit, and now it has to be related to Kripner's work. Because what Kripner shows is these guys hope that the market will constrain credit, and it doesn't. Right? 
but somehow they don't represent, they don't, yeah, the dangers that this brings about. And of course, I mean, it's a process that, that goes quite well for 30 years, so. Yeah? But, and maybe today, this, uh, this performative power of these policy devices shifts, I mean, but it also relates to academics. It also relates us to think about modern finance theory, about Whitley's contribution, that this is funded by the pension funds, that it's used to legitimate, that it's this beautiful coexistence of uh, the practice of finance and the practice of finance in academia that gets all their money to do all this, like, farmers stuff, right? And what does it mean for the new practice of finance? Today, because finance today is, a, is ever more, is, it's interesting for me because I'm observing now the job talks in Frankfurt, in the, in the finance and economics department, and they're all about house price cycles, stress tests, and all of this stuff, and I'm like, it's interesting to me because it changes. There is a change also in academia, and how this plays out, we need to theorize it for sure. You, jumping off from that point, you said it's interesting to you, uh, and I don't mean it with disrespect, but to a lot of people it isn't interesting. And I'm, the connection I'm making is with this idea of blame avoidance, and you, to which you seem to put great store towards the end, and isn't actually in terms of selling things to the public, that's what I have in mind in terms of not being really interested. Uh, when it comes to selling it to the public, in a sense, isn't a lot of politics characterized precisely by blame avoidance? And I was thinking when you had that little chart with a risk averse and otherwise zoned politician looking at it, and I thought, well, if we were to follow it, Boris Johnson would be on the third floor because he's a risk taker, or Trump, or indeed populism. So I'm, yes. I was going to say, no, it's going yes. back to what you said, which is trying to connect what you're saying in the economic sphere with the policy sphere. Can you do that a little bit more? Because I think a lot of this people <coughs> say it doesn't really matter. I think it does matter as it, as it happens. But what does this idea of blame avoidance mean? I mean, if you take your analogy, weather forecasting, we can, we can forecast weather with phenomenal precision these days. We have the data and so on. Local forecasts. So there you have the data speaks for itself. It's great, it's subjective. When it comes to climate change, we've got very interesting circumstantial evidence. And yet, when it comes to blame avoidance, how does analogously, yeah, you to take climate change as an example, surely there is enough evidence out there, there are enough models out there, there is enough analysis out there, why doesn't it translate into the real world? And why would this translate, as it were, into the real world? Why doesn't that Compare and contrast those two. Yeah, so I, I, I first, this uh, pointing out that the current populism is based on basically unleashing for a second time, or opening up the spigots of finance. I think it's very important just to characterize the, the current moment, what Trump does. Trump just says, let as much credit be there as, as there can be, because I get reelected. Now, I have one data point in my, and this is basically, so the initial project was one, two, three. One, economics, two, policy, third, politics. And uh, as I wrote this habilitation, I realized that part three is a little bit underdeveloped. But I have 
but it's, I mean, just wanna, but I have evidence of what happened in Germany. And so in Germany, um, there's this house price appreciation that you may not know about, but it's uh, basically in the big seven cities, house prices today are 100% more expensive than 10 years ago. So we have, in overall, it's about 40 to 50%. <coughs> and the Bundesbank has been worrying about this for six years, saying we think we should do something. And the Ministry of Finance has not done anything until this year. They have done something this year. They have set the counter-cyclic capital buffer at 0.25%, which is the smallest possible thing you could ever do. I agree. What I found, and here's my problem, people will not go on the record, is that the ECB said to them, either you act or we act. So, but whenever I ask people, it's kind of like, I stipulated something like this, somebody said, yeah, there was something, and then when I said go on the record, he was like, not happening. So there is some degree of technocratic, especially in the European Eurozone, where, where technocrats can interfere. But what I noticed, of course, also is exactly in terms of blame avoidance. I then did interviews with the Ministry of Finance and with the German financial supervisor. What comes out of it is basically a fear of not having acted early enough, an attempt to avoid blame in the future by being able to say we at least did something. So it operates to some degree by seeking to anticipate blame in the future. You do something, but you do it possibly or probably too late and too little. So probably we'll end up with too little, too late around for the next crisis. It's a tricky one, though. I prevented the crisis that never happened. That's exactly the problem of macroprudential regulation. So all of that, and there I have to be, uh, give credit where credit is due, all of that is already laid out brilliantly by Andrew Baker. So he has written that. You should just publish this blog and get over with it and allow everybody else to criticize him or whatever. <laughs> but he has it all published on the internet on some like drafts or whatever. But he has that, and yes, so this is the, the problems that I do encounter. But then the problem is how do you deal with something, and he, he has good work on the, the lack of translation of these problems into public politics or into public discussions and debates and so on. It's very important. but. How do you research something that didn't happen? Well, in theory, that's what they were doing with all those models when they were regressing. Exactly. And this is interesting because in, in regulatory science, the way that economics operates is when it has built a model that it sufficiently believes in as a consensus, it can make these games, can play these games, these simulation games, and say, this is a credible future. This is Jenny Anderson's work about credible futures and so on. This is the credible future that we can build our action on. And does something like that exist for, for politics? And if you ask Calon and so on, they would hope for what they call hybrid fora, where scientists and politicians and the public engage. And we haven't seen it unfold yet. Um, yeah, and all I can do in the end when I, write, when I try to write this book is write a chapter on these questions without being able probably to answer them. Yes, a really fascinating talk. And I have a question that kind of links to the former one, which is about the journey of these ideas. Because you mentioned at the end that in a way, um, the way macroprudential policy works right now, it enables a financialized economy to assist, so basically it's system stabilizing, if you will. 
could be. Um, yeah. If the models separate. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's not challenging the status quo. Of, um, well, it's challenging. Not, all, not economics, but the way the economy functions is not really challenging that regard. So, what I was wondering is how do these um, ideas travel? Can they be more critical? Or is it actually the process of them being accepted by the mainstream which, which makes them maybe less critical? Mm -hmm. So, I was wondering how far you could, you could see, observe a change of these ideas from their inception of the crisis until now, in yes. terms of how far they actually challenge the service So there is a clear, I mean, um, so there, there are a few different things. Yeah. Let me first clarify that this does challenge one thing, that Bruno Mayer had the courage to give a talk in 2012 in Frankfurt at the Deutsche Bank Prize, showing a model that argued basically that all the banks distribute dividends like crazy in March 2007, because they knew that a crisis was coming. And to have the chutzpah to present that in Frankfurt in, at the Deutsche Bank Prize. And so this is the one issue that they do take issue with. That the, the dividends of these profits get distributed and the profits get socialized, they take issue with. There is a bigger underlying issue, which is the question of, is credit at some point toxic? That's a, that's a frontier question in financial economics, or macroeconomics. There was recently a tweet post or whatever, or somebody, or a blog, somebody saying, oh, there are 100 papers now that show that finance is toxic. At some point, 100% is the, suppose 100% of GDP is the cut of money. And then you read the papers and you're like, five are by respected economists and the rest is, no offense, he's a great guy, but Andrew Baker. So while, while I do respect Andrew Baker a lot, I think a policymaker who will look at this will not say this is serious econometric analysis, robust testing. You see what I mean? Like, it's not truth. Now, the question is does truth matter? And that relates back to climate change. Does truth matter? Does truth matter that we are overheating, or does it not because vested interest will just block it anyway? Um, yes, yeah, so I mean, there is, of course, political science work that says. All you need to do is sow doubts, right? You don't need to disprove, you don't need to prove that credit is always good. You just need to prove that the results, that credit is not always good, or that there's this turning point, that this is questionable science, right? Um, and that relates back to the question that Andrew has raised, which is the question of who is the change agent, the, 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 the societal change agent, not the technocratic change agent, but the societal change agent that says enough. And um, in terms of financialization, there is this good work and there is, interestingly enough, anecdotal evidence from, from an economist. For example, Toporowski, I mean, there's also a very good American political science review work on this, but Toporowski says in this piece on London, he says, the middle classes have come to congratulate themselves on being so smart and saving and risk-taking and there is good neoliberal subject when all they do in the end is write a, a property loan. But they can't admit that truth because their self-representation of themselves is we are these good risk-takers that have been forward-looking and we are investing in property. And so there are classes in the society 
that are materially bound to the notion of credit is good, give us our credit, and let's have the property prices go up. And that in conjunction with the banks and all the people who do have a lot of money might just be enough to block, to block that question of ever becoming a certain that too much credit might be bad. And I, it's the moment when somebody like Colin Hay says we should not pretend that political science is science and instead just engage with the matter at hand, think about it. But currently I'm saying, well, can't measure them. No, no but uh, you see what I mean? Like it's very difficult to find an appropriate scientific approach to the question that you just raised. It's a very important question, and being a social constructivist, you realize that it's a question that you probably have an ethical duty to intervene in, but probably not in a way that could be termed scientific discourse, but rather as a position taker, saying, I believe this, this, and this, and I, uh, yeah, it's a bit difficult still. I don't know. This was, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, but the question I was wondering is, um, maybe in addition to that, do you see that these ideas changed over time, um, over the last 10 years, until they became kind of... So what, what, happened, what happened basically is one thing that, that really sticks and stuck, stuck mm -hmm. is the volatility paradox. And the volatility paradox is this idea that right before the storm, the sea is calmest. So that markets get the pricing of risk wrong. And really wrong. Like, and that, that idea has been fundamental also to Adrian and all of Adrian's work and all of that is crucial, is there. So that has stayed. What has not stayed in it, in a sense, and, and this is something, is, is this idea of the cycle. They have operated the cycle out of it. You can make a search in, in the growth, in the vulnerable, the paper is called vulnerable growth. If you search the, the word financial cycle, you find it one time in the reference list of a paper. That's it. And, and so what has gone away is what some might argue the hubristic assertion of epistemic authority by state authorities. This capacity to say, we know the cycle and the cycle is there. And it has been replaced by something that is more modest that says we have some knowledge about vulnerabilities and some knowledge about amplification mechanisms. And based on it, we think that the risk of a catastrophic effect has gone up. You see, like, it's this, there's more moderation to it. That's one. And the bigger one, and this is, again, I had a nice interview with a, with a policymaker in the UK who tried to push this topic that there might be too much debt. And one good example of this is Between Dead and the Devil by Turner. It's a brilliant book. It, it hasn't been taken up. This, this challenge that we might have just too many banks, the, yeah. that, has not, that has not gone through. Will these other ideas imply in the context of future developments, might they imply that this next idea comes in and is, is, is becoming very strong? just as when we have the climate uh, disaster, that people will actually say, yes, we should have probably taken that seriously and we should have probably acted then. I think so. What does it mean for a society that then has probably already used up all of its capacities to deal with the next shock? I don't know. 
But then again, this is not science. This is us as engaged scientists, activists, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, yeah. Yes? Hi, sorry. <laughs> no, no, you. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask about this kind of translation or communication and the appeals to authority, at, depending on the different audience. Because um, you've got this kind of attempt to translate it into, a, you know, a, an article I put in in your, and an attempt to get it you taken up by technocratic policymakers, and then from the discussion to get it taken on board by more political actors. Um, and what kind of variation there is in terms of who and who and what an expert looks like. Um, and kind of, you talked about some of the need to put things into specific models and whether or not that applies across all of the different audiences that you're speaking to. And I was also interested in the kind of different gatekeepers for these different audiences. So in particular, when you talk a lot about um, kind of getting engagement from high-ranking academic economists and components of these specific academic journals, when we know all of these limitations to access to those spaces in terms of, I'm thinking in particular of gender, like these high-ranking economics departments are massively male-dominated, it's much harder to get published in these journals if you're a woman or if there's a female co-author, and then the politics of expertise in the public sphere and how that's changing maybe actually has a reverse impact, that those same credentials that got you translated in those spaces might make it more difficult to translate in broader politics these days. So I was just wondering about the similarities and differences with the different audiences that you're trying to speak to, or that these models are trying to speak to. Mm -hmm. so that's, a, that's a brilliant, brilliant question. So I, I, I think um, the first thing that I would like to clarify is I do not think that um, the growth at risk... So different audiences and different... Okay. So the growth at risk framework, I don't think it becomes so impressive to these applied economists, not to first audience, applied economists. They don't really care in that sense if it's American Economic Review, Review of Finance. What they do care about is the, what you could call the, the skill, the craft, what they, would, what they call robust. Their understanding of what robustness means in their world as a professional economist. And so that's one interview, at least, that I have where somebody says, well, if you don't work on the U.S., you don't get published in the American Economic Review. It's just not going to happen because you don't have the great data, you don't have this and that. But that doesn't mean that a policymaker will not find interesting your idea. What they will do is they will tell their applied economists, is this robust or not? And if it is robust, then they will, you know, they will use it independent if it's published in the American. So it's, it's something in the paper rather than in status. So the status is an expression of what is in the paper. <laughs> Interesting. But still, I, yeah, for the moment I will take that stance. Okay? It's not so much... A, but then comes the second audience. The second audience are the spokespersons for this. In this case, Brazier, Brazier or whatever you call it, is he can work with that. He's going to give a speech about how the Bank of England uses cutting-edge research, works with the IMF, implements a framework that has been published in the American Economic Review. So this um, debate on a more um, rhetorical level, they can work with that. Now, does that travel to um, does that travel to audiences to the public? I think it only will when the crisis is there. And it will be, but it will be, what I'm interested in is this narrative that will be there. The narrative last time was, oh, we didn't see it coming, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we didn't, I mean, 
lack of imagination, really sorry. But <coughs> that's not going to work next time. Whatever will work next time, I don't know, but that's not going to work. And, but will, will, will somebody say, oh, the growth at risk framework says there is a likely crisis with 30% GDP taken up and so on. I think, and there is something very interesting here about macroprudential policy and their communication. Right now, most of it is not communicated. Like, I mean, just if you remember this red lights thing that I showed you, nothing of this is published. Why? Because the ECB, and what, what I showed you is there is no name. It says country one, country two, country three. Why? Because the ECB does not want to start a crisis by publishing, uh, oh, we think there is a, a red uh, hot property bubble, right? But then the question is, well, if the information is never communicated to the public, how could the public even know what they're exposed to? And this is, but this is where it gets interesting for me because, and that's what I mentioned, the IMF, where Adrian is right now, where really, literally, he goes on tour. Like, this guy is promoting, like, we promote our papers, he's promoting his paper. And you can go on the website of the IMF, there's an Excel sheet, everything is, you just need to put in the data, it's going to give you a number. And what, the question that I'm asking here is, will this lead to the popularization of this? Is there actually, you know, and that is something that requires more research, work, time, money, <laughs> maybe, or just my time. I'm paid by Sciences Po, so. But um, in how, how far that gets communicated. And, 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 uh, but then again, I mean, right, climate change question. There's plenty of climate change, the UNCPPA or whatever it's called, and they're, but they, that got destroyed with ClimateGate, right? When they managed to show that they were fudging the data in 2000, was it 2009 or 2009? There was this moment when, the, when they managed to show that they were playing around with the data, and that sowed the doubts, I think. That, that was one of the reasons why there's not enough power for this model today, because people, will, people who want to be suspicious will be suspicious. But that's not, even that is not happening currently. And that's where it gets interesting. Who could be these agents that publish this? And yes, if you want my opinion, if you want to use Hall's example, it would have to be newspapers, think tanks, academic economists that run around and say, financial stability is out of control, there is this problem, we have to act. Just as they did with inflation back then. I don't know if it's happening. But, but this question of audiences and how it plays out is, is something that I really need to think a lot about. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I was wondering, um, I was triggered by the by trying to sort of the resilience framework, and I was wondering because much has been made in the in the literature on resilience of um, sort of equilibrium thinking being, being away at the idea that uh, non-equilibrium or the constant crisis is being normalized. And at the same time as well, that causality doesn't matter anymore. It just matters sort of if you have uh, correlations between different different variables. So you can spot, uh, yeah, uh, spot uh, or like take advantage of different um, differentials. Yes. And I, I wondered if like, so I wondered, you know, in 2008 it's, um, People were so very surprised that this resilience framework was adopted out of nowhere, or even though it had been around like since the 70s from ecological thinking and so on. And I wondered if there's some roots to that in sort of practitioners, if you know that, like in practitioners thinking, because of course, you know, like if you're a financial 
that if you're working in financial markets, I think like these model, models also don't work on, on causality anymore, the assumptions, but like on finding correlations where you can um, arbitrage between mm -hmm. certain positions. I wonder if there's like sort of an underpinning of that new framework that's in practitioners and models already, or if you think it's really a clear-cut sort of crisis and shift. Or like, where, where does it come from? Where does the adoption of resilience thinking come from? Like, why, why turn to that if it's been around for seven? Yeah, since the 70s, or like mm -hmm. <coughs> So, uh, let me do two things. Try to answer your question, pick up on something, and just say something else. But I'll, I'll try to first answer your question uh, by stating that there is a guy called Onur Osgode at uh, Northwestern University who would say it comes from, I think, nuclear war planning, and Dodd-Frank Act is just the implementation of nuclear war planning or something. I think he, he, might, he might have a point, and there's another guy called Andreas Volkers who has written a book exactly on this, and I had the pleasure of um, reading parts of it. And so they are saying it gets, gets imported from other, it's a security yeah, dispositive that gets imported from other places. And um, I, think, I think what I've argued in an article in the public administration is I related it to blame avoidance strategies by managers, by central bank managers. And it's cheap, not cheap, but I mean, I use Tucker. And I mean, everything I'm going to say is just Tucker's argument, but it seems to hold sway, which is exactly that. If you prevent a crisis, you get no bonus. If you screwed up, you get hit. So why, why would you ever want to set yourself a goal which is anti-cyclical, right? Because that's... I'm showing basically there was this debate, anti-cyclical or resilience. In the end they come up with, oh, we're going to put anti-cyclical into resilience. That's actually the, the way that it gets resolved. But what I show is that it actually, this whole <coughs> sway, the, they, they are very, like Carpenter, if you know Carpenter's work about the FDA and so on, they're very aware of the possible consequences of the kind of goals that they're going to adopt for central banks <coughs> for future legitimacy of central banks. And so they're abstaining from anti-cyclical and they go for resilience. Now that is not answering your question where resilience comes from. It is telling you why resilience gets picked up by the, policy, by the central bank managers, in a sense. That's one. Um, the other question is what I found interesting and what I haven't still really worked out is this, this whatever, dialectical unity. If you have a better term, I'll use it. Uh, but the, the important part is when I started talking with these people, there is this practical knowledge that always also fascinated me in Minsky. This practical knowledge where people say, I don't care about equilibrium models, I just know that, for example, some guy at the Bundesbank said, I know that monetary aggregates are driven by credit decisions of banks. Any model you can have out there, you know, you can tell me whatever you want, I know for a fact because I see it. I'm working with it, I'm seeing it. You can't, I mean, you know. And, and so, um, whether that kind of thinking leans towards resilience, um, uh, I, I, I can't tell you. The, the issue is, what I find interesting is this modes of reasoning. Modes of reason. I think modes of reasoning are very important, and the way in which they appeal to policymakers. What resilience allows you to do, and this is, by the way, also the new Keynesian thinking about coordination failures, it allows you to say, I'm not smarter than you. 
I don't, I'm not, I'm not committing the neoliberal, uh, like the arrow that neoliberals would go on about forever. I'm not going to claim to be smarter than you. I'm going to say you're very smart, but you have a problem coordinating. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a better road system with better red lights so that you don't crash all the time. That I can do. But I'm not going to tell you how fast you should go. Or I'm not going to go up and down with the speed that you can go on the street according to how much traffic there is or whatever. I'm not going to do that because I can't know that. But what I can know is I can know resilience. Right? <coughs> I mean, I, you know, so there is a, there's an appeal of reasoning and there is also a certain disappeal of reasoning. See what I mean? Where I, it might be that resilience is just very appealing. There is a, Entsprechung, there is a, there is a correspondence between a style of reasoning and the, political situation that leaders find themselves in that might have led also to resilience being chosen. Yeah. Uh, yes, I have a, one more question, something I was wondering about. You said that in the end if there's a crisis, blame will be distributed if people haven't adopt, acted. And so I was wondering with these um, new policy devices that have emerged, do they actually, now that they're out there, are people, are maybe politicians, kind of uh, in a way forced or pressured to adopt them? So is it really about, oh, we have this fantastic idea out there, let's maybe go for it, or actually, oh, um, this idea is out there, instead of doing nothing, we should probably adopt it. So in how far is this um, um, yeah, this, oh, this is a great idea, or uh, we have to do something, let's do this. It's the, I, I, and I think, so this, I think this battle is fought, fought in, different, in different arenas. I will point, first of all, to the economics profession itself. So the moment that more and more economists would go out there and say, I have done the calculation using the growth at risk framework, I see grave dangers. That would be, so it's an addition of voices that when you are a Bundesbank economist and you find that there is growing risks, but you also find that the Ministry of Finance doesn't do much, you risk your career when you go out and you say, I think risks are building up. And I, I, I say that because I know of cases where people put stuff out on blocks and then they, they ran into trouble because people told them to stop. And so, it needs voices that can speak up, and I think, interestingly, it's going to be, one issue is going to be the economics profession. The second one is going to be think tanks. The third one is going to be educated journalists. So these three audiences, in, together with the technocrats, could be the ones that pressure politicians into adopting certain models or taking them seriously. So what, the, what I'm working here with is basically anticipating blame and therefore doing something but not much. That's what I find, at least, for Germany. That's exactly what I find. You do something because you don't want to be blamed, but you're also aware that it's not going to hurt anybody. Like 0.25, they know it's not going to do much. But they did something. I'm still thinking it through, so... So, do you know the Walker Cooper 
I heard of it. Yeah, I think that would be interesting because I also have this growth release model, you know, sort of line eight. So it's, there is some kind of cycle, but it's a resilient, it's model resilient. Um, but there is another piece, I can't remember the name now, by a legal scholar from Australia, and they examine to what extent the resilience paradigm makes sense. <coughs> makes sense what? In finance. Because they say that the risk, I mean, obviously it's contrary to the risk calculus, right? So they, so rhetorically, and that maybe the systemic risk, financial regu regulatory um, level, it makes sense because that shares the value of safety in a sense, but at the at market risk level, it doesn't make any sense. So how, but you also said that tail risk is, cal they, they calculate tail risk. How do they do that? And how do they negotiate these Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, so first of all, what is interesting is that in your reformulation, is that actually we can it makes sense to so cycle thinking was not palatable even in finance, it's like to these regulators, not for the market, but but resilience or was more palatable. But second, um, in, in a second paper, what I, the contradiction that I'm trying to show is. Mainstream academics have operated for 40 years using market data as the conveyor of truth. They have based all their econometric techniques on markets to tell them risk, to speak to them. And what I then find is a contradiction in these papers, and there are plenty of contradictions in these papers, and they're very interesting, where you use a technique that assumes A to show not A. But you have no way of knowing other than with these, old te with these techniques. So basically, growth at risk is a variation on value at risk. But it's a variation on it that includes crucial differences. It's different, but it's a continuation. Because they find it impossible, which is not very surprising, to construct something from scratch. So they have to start somewhere, right? So they use this logic, and it's actually interesting because Adrian uses it very co consciously. He knows, everybody knows value at risk, so I'm gonna do, the first thing he does is I'm gonna do kova. The second thing he does is I'm gonna do ga, not va, it's gonna be ga, growth at risk. You see what I, like, there's also a lot of rhetorical consciousness in this, that, 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 you, that you incrementally build a departure. From, from, from the ontological status of the market as true sale towards um, actually economics. Actually economics as true sale. Because, and there's a big blame, right? The economics has to say, I know, I see financial vulnerabilities, I have a model that is not the market, it's not in the market. And um, there is this tension and these tensions, how they get resolved, is in really funny ways. Uh, you would get, I mean, if anybody who's interested in this, take the paper by Brunemeyer and Sanikov, which is a continuous mathematics dynamics stochastic general equilibrium model with rational agents that models financial cycles. And this is an impossibility. What I just said is logically impossible. It gets published in the American Economic Review. How do they do it? 
they built with two agents, which is already interesting, two agents, and one slower than the other. And then they say at the end of it, if we reconcile our model world with the real world, what we just showed you in the model looks like a financial cycle, comma, doesn't it? And that's it. So they are, they are, they are caught on the one hand in their, in their old ways of doing things, and they're trying to express a new truth. And if you talk with the post-Keynesians about them, they're furious. It's impossible. How can you build a financial cycle in the ESG world? It's not going to work. If you talk to people like Brunemeyer or something, they will tell you, well, we're just trying to re-express what we have known in a new language. Basically, right, it's the reinvention of what he, he said. Basically, people often tell me what I'm doing is what Tobin did. Yes, but I'm doing it with more data in a more mathematical fashion. Or, so it's a reinvention of what we have known, namely the vulnerabilities of finance, in a language. And, and, and how that works out, whether that is not an attempt to run forward on one foot or, you know, is beyond me, to be honest with you. But it could be. It could be that. But there is some, there are some path dependencies here that I think people that just speak of ideational shifts, uh, they, they can't take into view. See what I mean? Like, the, the economics profession is a profession, and it, it moves slowly, often too slowly. I think, you know, like, right? I mean, I heard speeches by economists in 2010 that says, let's assume a general equilibrium world, there's always credit in financial markets, it's always liquid. And I was looking at the guys like, Dude, it's New York 2010. What are you talking about? Did you, did you go out yesterday? Or, you know? And so this is a theoretical economist that has the pleasure of just closing his door. But when you are an applied economist, and let me just tell you this, I really love this quote. On the 31st floor of the ECB, the economists enter with a DSGE model. The president, one of the guys of the council gets up and says, if you ever come here again with a rational agent, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model, to explain the crisis, we throw you out. Because they have persistently failed for 12 months to make any meaningful predictions. They've always just said, it's going to go back to normal in three months. So when you are an applied economist, you don't have the the pleasure of just closing the door and saying, as long as my profession says what I'm doing is economics, it's economics. Because that policymaker will start yelling at you at some point. Because they really literally said, our explanation of the crisis is a technical change that we haven't detected yet, or a sudden change of preference, which now makes that 25% of the Spanish young people want to stay home. Because these are the two options that they have in their DSG model. That was the two options in the model. They couldn't do anything else. So they have to evolve because... But then, here's the funny thing. How do they evolve? They build a DSGE model with two agents. <laughs> you see what I mean? Like, they, they take up the challenge, but the way that they take up the challenge, they produce incremental change rather than producing this... We're gonna, like the Bank of England tries the agent-based modeling and so on, but in the end, you know, now we have seven agents. Or you sort of mean that. But there's still some path dependency. 
I don't know how to, I can just tell you the story, I don't know how to theorize it yet. Mm. But there, I mean, they want to stay. It's in, like, one last thing is that, that, that in Frankfurt is an interesting place because all these young economists, they are sent there to make their PhD. And so you get to meet them that when they work at the ECB. And they all want to do stuff other than DSGE models. They want to do agent-based modeling. Or, and their supervisor tells them, no, you have to do micro-foundations, you have to do dynamics to plastic generation, because that's what the profession does. And if you want to be an economist, that's what you have to do. So there are contradictions and tensions in this space that still make these people cling to the mainstream, but I can only notice, but not really fully understand. Like, you know, it's this, you see what I mean? Like, the same guy who tells you the story about this tells you a second later, and then we come up with this new DSGE model that now has credit and default in it. That's the way that you deal with it. That's the way you deal with it. All right. Thank you very much for brilliant questions. It was a, it was a great pleasure presenting to you. Thank you. Thank you.